seated. Thanks for fixing that computer problem, Dave. <laughs> if you have a Bible, you can open to Luke chapter 5. The text is also printed in the bulletin. And, uh, and again, there are some Bibles available uh, in the back of the sanctuary if you need one. Luke 5, we'll look at verses 1 through 11 this morning. I'll just give you a brief recap again of where we've uh, been the last few weeks in our uh, sermon series on worship, uh, casting a, a general vision for worship, um, uh, for our worship services, why we do the things that we do, um, and maybe even in the order that we do them, um, those, those big things, right? Maybe not why we wear the clothes that we wear or... Um, why we sing the particular songs that we sing or whatever, but those, those big elements of worship, why we do those things. Um, and first, uh, firstly, we do these things because the Bible tells us to do these things, because we see, we see them in the Scripture. Revelation is the basis for our worship. Um, and when you enter into a relationship with someone, um, you don't just creatively imagine what he or she is like or might be like and relate to that person based on your own whims. You get to know who they really are, who they reveal themselves to be to you, and you learn to interact with them um, in, in that way. And so, uh, in much the same way, and even more so because of God's holiness, um, God insists that we learn from him about who he is and how we're to relate to him, and worship, um, uh, corporate worship is a, a huge part of that. So, uh, revelation is the basis for our worship. Um, worship is Trinitarian in nature. I'm probably going to read this quote to you every week because I love it. It's that quote from uh, Torrance. Worship is the gift of participation through the Spirit in the incarnate Son's communion with the Father. Right? So we're caught up into this relationship with, uh, with the Father through the Spirit, and we stand in the incarnate Son's place with regard to the Trinitarian relationships. And ultimately, this is what gives our worship um, kind of its overall uh, dialogical, conversational uh, call, and call and response uh, structure uh, and, and the rhythm to the liturgy. Um, among other things, clearly. <clears throat> uh, so worship is tr Trinitarian, and worship is incarnational in focus. Um, the incarnation, in case you're not familiar with that theological term, is uh, God in the flesh, right? God, uh, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, becoming uh, human uh, for our salvation. And we, we talk a lot about the gospel of Jesus because worship is uh, incarnational in focus. The Son of God became a man in order to reveal God to us, and to redeem us for a relationship with God. And that arises actually from his being uh, the second member of the Trinity. Uh, I don't know if you remember this. It popped into my head. Um, back in Advent, we, uh, we looked at Philippians 2, where it said that Christ, being God, um, didn't think it was out of character to become a man and to give his life for us, to, to become humble, to become a human to save us from our sins, uh, he did all that because he is who he is, because he's the second member of the Trinity, because God is triune, moving outward in love, and so um, he moved outward toward us in love in the incarnation. And that's why Paul says um, to the Corinthians, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. This is the, this is the crucial truth in, um, in all of history, is that God became a man, and so our worship is then focused on the God-man uh, on Christ, so it's Christocentric, and um, because worship then is 
um, is reflective of the Trinity. It's reflective of God's nature as love. God is love. And because uh, worship is reflective of the incarnation, God moving toward us in love, then um, love's consideration of others characterizes our worship. Everything that, that we do is meant to build each other up in love, whether that's uh, we build up fellow believers or unbelievers that we hope are um, with us and present in worship. And, and so then last week, we looked at the first of our usual elements of worship, kind of the first um, thing that shows up in our order of service in that, that bold, small caps font is um, the, the call to worship. We can consider the fact that God himself is the one who initiates relationship with us. God is the one who invites us into his presence. Um, like with Isaiah 6, which our Old Testament reading, um, God is the one who grants Isaiah the vision that he is then caught up in uh, into the, the throne room of God himself. God's the one who initiates and invites us, the one who actually frees us from our self-absorption, enables us to get our eyes off of ourselves and, uh, and to respond to him uh, with, with faith and thanksgiving and praise and service, uh, that our lives would become God-centered rather than me-centered anymore. Um, because of him, we're in Christ, we looked at last week, uh, which is uh, brought about... Uh, we, we're brought into the Son's position. We're brought into Christ by God's grace uh, to engage in worship and communion. And this, um, this dynamic that, uh, that God initiates with us, that element of worship, the call to worship, uh, gives shape to the structure of our worship and everything begins with his initiative through his word. And everything that we do is a response to him, to his grace, to his work his word. And that dynamic is at work in the section of our service where we uh, corporately confess our sins to God, which is what we're going to look at this morning. Um, if you know human nature, if you know yourself, um, then you'll know that we will never admit our faults. We will never confess our sins unless we feel um, safe in the relationship that will endure such a confession. Right. Um, our greatest fear is that once we're truly and fully known, we will not be loved. In fact, we'll be rejected. That's our greatest fear. And, and if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that we actually deserve to be rejected for who we really are. Right? Uh, and this is a terrifying prospect when it comes to our eternal relationship with God. So our uh, confession of sin isn't just something that we come up, of, uh, come up with on our own. Right? This is something that has to be in response to God's initiating grace which is why that particular section of the service, it's usually a full page in our bulletin, um, it starts with a, a minister or an elder uh, reading the word of God and calling us to confess our sins. And that call, uh, that scripture text, is usually a promise of mercy, right? It's focused on the grace of God. Um, he calls, we respond. And then he assures us of his forgiveness and his pardon. And that's pretty much the structure of the sermon. Um, it's, it's a pattern we see in several places in Scripture, including our text this morning, Luke chapter 5. So um, let me pray, and then we'll read the Scripture. Father, as we consider your word this morning, we pray that you would help us. You have spoken your word um, through the prophets, through the apostles, through your own Son, by your spirit, and so we pray for your spirit's help now that you would open our eyes, that you would unstop our ears, that you would uh, 
soften our hearts, give us new hearts to be able to receive your word and be changed by it into the likeness of Christ, our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he, Jesus, was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. So the whole life of Peter that we see recorded, uh, little bits of it anyway in the Gospels and in the New Testament, uh, the whole life of Peter is given to us as a tremendous encouragement, isn't it? Uh, if, if we were making up a religion that was meant to inspire us to goodness and to righteousness, uh, we would probably conveniently ignore Peter's life as one of the leaders in the church. Uh, because he's pretty much a tragic failure, right? Um, that dynamic in itself is a testimony to the truth of the Gospels, because people who write Gospels and include themselves in stories like this um, usually aren't so self-deprecating, right? Uh, Peter's life um, as kind of failure after failure is a, is a good testimony to the truth of the Gospels themselves. In the Gospels, he's almost always set forth as a failure, and that's meant, um, it's meant to connect with us. Right, because really, he's just like us. Um, like Peter, we are prone to be too proud and uh, too stubborn to accept what God is doing through Christ in the Gospels. Um, like Peter, our instinct for self-preservation frequently sub subverts our allegiance to God and his mission in the world. Uh, like Peter, our desire for the approval of important people too often finds expression in uh, showing favoritism and separating ourselves from others. Basically, like Peter, we sin. Right. He's not some idealized uh, spiritual guru. He's a perfect example of, of, of what people are really like, which makes him a great trophy of God's grace. It's a testimony to the patient mercy of Jesus Christ, which, after all, um, is what Christianity is actually about, the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. In this passage in particular, <clears throat> Peter serves as a pattern for our worship. He demonstrates 
what it's really like when we encounter God, which is what worship is, engaging with God. Um, and Peter demonstrates what it's really like when you encounter God, um, what our response to this encounter should really look like. And this isn't the first time Peter had met Jesus in our passage. Um, uh, in the region where Jesus and Peter both lived, it wouldn't be surprising if they'd known each other in their youth, but the scriptures don't kind of give us um, insight into that part of Jesus' life. But, but in Luke 4, we are told that um, after Jesus cast a demon out of someone in a synagogue, right, it's, it's a worship meeting, um, Jesus casts out the demon and then he goes to um, Peter's house and heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then he spent all night there healing the sick and casting out demons. So Peter's had some pretty close-up exposure um, to Jesus, to his power, to his kindness, alleviating the sufferings of so many people, even in his own family, his mother-in-law. Um, <clears throat> well, so one night, Peter and his crew, the experienced fishermen, most likely they'd done this all their lives. Uh, James and J John are sons of Zebedee, probably a fisherman, so it's in, our, in their family, right? They're pros. Um, they'd been out all night long on the water and caught absolutely nothing. So they're tired and um, probably not in the best mood, and they're back at the shore washing their nets, which is a, um, a tedious chore involving repair, making repairs and folding them up. And yeah, It's not the most pleasant part of the job, especially when you've got nothing to show for a, a night's worth of labor. <coughs> And then here comes Jesus, a rabbi, a powerful rabbi, teaching people by the lake, and he makes himself at home in Peter's boat. Um, this is, it seems like a fairly intrusive act, right? Um, it's as if he just let himself into your home while you're downstairs doing the laundry and goes to your front window and starts talking to people who are standing on your lawn. Right, and that um, you'd probably feel maybe that was a bit presumptuous of him if anybody did that, right? Um, and the text says that Jesus sat to teach, which um, was the, the customary position for a rabbi. It's actually a posture of authority, right? Um, then Jesus asserted his authority in an even more invasive way, giving orders to the captain. Uh, telling the captain, let's put out and uh, get back to work, right? Um, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Come on, boss. Uh, we've just been cleaning up to head for home, and now you want us to start all over again at the worst time of the day for fishing to try um, what we've been doing all night long without success. I mean, wasn't it enough that I let you use my boat to preach your sermon? I mean... Um, now you want to infringe on my free time when I'm tired and tell me how to do my job, uh, which I've been doing my whole life. I mean, you can sense the frustration, right, um, in his words, uh, the reluctance in his response. I mean, these, these are familiar feelings to us when God makes claims on our lives. Master, we toiled all night and took nothing but at your word, I'll let down the nets. So, I mean, maybe Peter gives it in out of a general respect for Jesus because, you know, he seems pretty important in all. But uh, you can tell this is not just coming from joy, joy, 
joy, joy down in his heart, right? Um, <clears throat> but, but he does it reluctantly, and, um, and then there's a miracle, right? When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. Their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so they began to sink. I mean, this is just not what normally happens, clearly, especially not after a, a night of, um, of zero catch, right? <clears throat> it's an Im impossibly large catch of fish. It would be a ridiculous scene. Uh, uh, the Jesus film, what is that, from 1979 or something? <laughs> I love that movie. It's just a ridiculous, goofy scene <laughs> in the movie. It, it's true. Uh, <clears throat> but instantly, everybody knows that Jesus made this happen, right? Uh, they knew his reputation for miracles. They'd seen them firsthand, so they knew this was no accident. This was no just happy coincidence. Jesus had intruded. Um, he had imposed himself upon Peter, and his initiation, that's what that was, his initiation of this scene resulted in an incredible blessing. Now, Peter and his guys could not only feed their families, uh, maybe they could take a little bit of time off. You know, fix those nets that were just broken. Um, but it's a display of Jesus' power. It's a display of Jesus' kindness to Peter, right? It's the kind of thing that calls for a response, don't you think? And what would your response be? What is Peter's response? It's, uh, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me. For I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished. And that word is kind of a, it's like a wonder combined with fear. They were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. So this is Peter's response to Jesus' blessing. Right? It's his response to Jesus' gracious presence. His gracious intrusion uh, to the demonstration of Jesus' favor and kindness toward him. This is what Peter's response is. He falls down in submission and confession of his sin, having witnessed the Lord's love, called by the Lord's love, not by loud threats of, uh, of violent judgment. Right? We know instinctively without being told that judgment awaits people like us, sinful people. Not just people who commit the most atrocious sins, not just people who commit genocide. Right? Judgment awaits, and we know instinctively that judgment awaits people who resent their spouses for petty things, inconveniences. People who yell at their kids out of anger. People who try to one-up each other in the workplace. Right? People like us. We know instinctively that judgment awaits people like us. And if all that we have is fear of judgment, then we will bury the truth about our sin. Um, and then if we're forced to confess our sins, there's a despair to it. Maybe not even a genuine remorse. But with a glimpse of God's grace... With a glimmer of hope in his love, we will be broken down, weeping, confessing our sins in true sorrow for who we've become. 
I'm a sinful man for what we've done. When we realize who God really is and then are able to admit who we really are, then we're compelled to confess our sin to him. Uh, Anytime in scripture that any normal human being encounters holiness, whether it's uh, meeting an angel as a representative of the Lord or having a vision of God himself, the absolutely natural response is to pass out. Uh, That's what Daniel did several times. Pass out, face on the ground, fall down, um, bow down, worship, confess sins, right? um, often in fear. Again, in Isaiah 6, our Old Testament reading, God reveals himself gloriously to Isaiah, whose response is confession of sin. And his confession is actually at least a little bit tinged with despair. Woe, woe is me, right? Until the angel moves toward him and uh, assures him of the atonement for his sins. Same pattern in uh, Job 38 to 42, familiar with the story of Job. Um, God allows some serious suffering in Job's life, and the bulk of the book is Job questioning, why is this happening? Is God even righteous to let this happen? Um, And then we see the pattern again of God's glorious self-revelation to Job. All he does is say who he is, right? Um... And Job is compelled to confess and shut his mouth in, in humiliation before God. Um, you see that again in Ezra 9 and then in Nehemiah 9. The people of Israel are brought back out of uh, exile from Babylon. They've been in captivity in Babylon and they're brought back, right? This is, um, this is a massively important stage in their deliverance, in their uh, freedom from Babylon. And what do they do is they read God's law and they corporately together confess their sins to the one who's been delivering them. Uh, Simon Chan, it's a quote in the beginning of your bulletin, says that the revelation of God's glory leads to the realization of our own unworthiness. Here we are confronted with the fact of our lostness before the holy God. The confession occurs in the presence of the divine majesty. It does not arise from self-discovery through self-examination. If you're in God's presence, if God has revealed himself to you, if his word is spoken to you, um, you know you need to confess your sins. And Peter's confession of sin to Jesus here is, uh, I think, probably the most beautiful in all of scriptures because it arises from a vision of grace, from an experience of, of mercy. Jesus' kindness calls Peter to confession. As uh, Paul says in Romans, it, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Again, God always initiates through his word, through revealing himself to us, and we respond. And that's, that's true of every aspect of our relationship with him, and it's true anytime we do anything in worship, And in this passage, uh, we have a picture of God's initiative, Jesus' initiative, um, and that it's one of grace, right? He is moving to us in grace of his own initiative. And even his grace produces fear, but it's a good fear, right? It's not a hopeless one uh, that compels Peter to confess his sin. There's a a book that's put together to... um, help provide several uh, 
elements of liturgy. It's called the Worship Source Book. I think some people wrote it who are in connection with uh, Covenant College. Um, there's a quote from it. It says, God's grace comes to us, creating a relationship with us in Christ in which honesty about our sin is welcome and safe. The call to confession, therefore, is a word of grace, like the assurance of pardon, not an exercise that shames us into confession. So how does, um, how does Jesus then care for Peter after his confession? He doesn't just pat him on the shoulder and say, oh, buddy, it's okay. It's not really that bad. Right? Don't worry. Um, it is that bad. And Peter knows that. And when you're dealing with a holy God and your entire life is characterized by rebellion against him, even just forgetting him for large portions of your day, um, then you know it's bad. It's bad enough that the only way you're going to be made right with him, the only way you're going to be saved from his wrath is by the Son of God becoming a man, a perfect Savior dying on the cross in your place. But Jesus uh, might not just console him, but he doesn't condemn him. Right? He does not condemn Peter. He cares for him. He soothes his fears in grace. He keeps moving toward Peter. It says, uh, he said to Simon, do not be afraid. And this serves the function in the text of a declaration of forgiveness. Right? Jesus assures Peter of his love and our assurance of pardon, then, which uh, reflects this, it arises from the heart of God, which is revealed here. Right? Because Jesus perfectly reveals God to us. And so in our service, uh, at no time do we reenact an atoning sacrifice for our sins. At no time do we kill any animals or anything like that where, where we are um, making an actual present atonement for our sins to cover our sins. We, we point back to the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus that covers all of our sins, past, present, and future. Right? That's what we point to in our service. You're not assured forgiveness, um, you're also not assured forgiveness based on the level of your contrition. Right? If you really got into the confession of sin this time, you can really be assured and feel that forgiveness. Um, you're not assured of forgiveness based on that. You're assured because of God's grace alone. Because uh, in the sacrifice of Christ, you're forgiven. You are justified. You're declared righteous in God's sight, which brings you peace with God. Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus said to Peter, don't be afraid. He's communicating his peace to him. He's conveying his peace. He, he knows Peter's fear is destruction and rejection by a holy God. He's, Go away from me, please, for I'm a sinful man, no Lord. But God moves toward us to assure us of his peace. So, so we speak the peace of Christ to each other in that part of our service. May the peace of Christ be with you and you respond and also with you. Uh, we all need the assurance of forgiveness equally, right? I need it just as much as you do. Uh, that part of the service is a great equalizer for all of us. We are all in desperate need of God's peace. And this is what evokes then our continued worship, right?
worship as those who are in relationship with God by grace, who know the fact that we're in relationship with God only by grace. Uh, worship as those who are made disciples of Jesus, who are learning his ways, who are engaging in uh, following him and engaging in his own mission, right? So then it says in verses 10 and 11, Jesus says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. From now on, you'll be doing what I do. From now on, uh, you'll be following me. Your life will be on a new trajectory. And then they, they brought their boats to land. They left everything and followed him, right? Maybe that means their, their huge catch of fish, they just kind of left it there. Maybe they took care of it and gave it to their families as kind of a parting gift while they were on the road for the next three years, you know. Um, but this is reflective, again, of the pattern that's found in uh, Psalm 51, where David says, basically, forgive me, and then I'll praise you, and I'll teach sinners your ways in a way that honors your mercy. So knowing peace with God through Jesus Christ, like Peter and the others, we leave everything. Our lives are on a new trajectory. Uh, we are renewed, right? which is immediately... Uh, and we have an example of that response in the, the giving, the offering that comes right after the, the confession of sin section. But Peter was a brand new Christian, didn't know anything, would almost totally botch everything else for, for the rest of his life. Anything is recorded anyway, um, except maybe in the book of Acts. But, um, <clears throat> but maybe you're new to the faith. Maybe you feel a bit lost. Right? Welcome to the club. That's what we're like know that God has made you into a new creation and he's working in you to renew you after the image of his son he forgives you he loves you and you have peace with him through faith in Jesus Christ and we all need to be reminded of that regularly right all of us need to be reminded of that regularly which is why we do the confession of sin um, every week and it's why we observe it early in our worship Right. Some, some traditions put it later. They connect it to the confession of faith. Um, that's fine. Um, but we do it early on because uh, this is, we know we have a relationship with God. We enter into his presence through um, a confession of our sins and through the, the peace that we find in Christ. And so we sit at his feet then uh, in the service, in the development of the service, and we sit at his feet um, after we, we give our offerings and we sing our praises, we hear his word, we, um, we enjoy our communion with him, and we're strengthened to serve him as we go out into the world, right? to fulfill the great commission to be catchers of men. Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. Follow me. Right? That's what Jesus says. The rest of our service, the rest of our lives, given in service to him, is a response to his grace in the forgiveness of our sins. We fish for men, uh, we do evangelism, we serve in his mission through our dependence on Christ for his mercy, through our celebration of his love to us that we do not deserve. Right? And when we confess our sins, um, we can relate to anyone. Right? At, the, at the deepest level, we can relate to each other. We all have the same tendencies to sin. We all have the same capacities for sin. 
And if we confess our sins, then we show that there's enough love in God, there's enough freedom in the gospel to take away our fear of rejection. Tim Lane says that if you understand your own need for the gospel daily, others will want to know that same grace. In his mercy, God calls you to confess your sins, so throw yourself on Christ for his mercy and be assured that because of who he is and because of what he's done for you, that your sins are forgiven. Therefore, may the peace of Christ be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are seated on the throne of the universe. And like Peter, we fall at your knees. We are unworthy to be in your presence, and yet you love us. You have gone to such lengths to forgive us our sins. And uh, that changes everything in our lives. It grants such potential to the whole world to be renewed in confession of sin and confession of faith. And so we pray that um, as you commune with us now at this uh, table that we're looking forward to, that you would use it to strengthen us for your service, that you would make us the kind of people who catch other people simply by being those who are humbled by your grace. We pray this in your name and for the sake of your kingdom. Amen.